Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. I am Toby, and I'm very happy to welcome today's guest, Miriam Frankel. Miriam is the science editor for The Conversation UK and has written widely as a freelancer also in British and Swedish media. She previously worked at Research Fortnight, a specialist publication focusing on science, technology and higher education policy. And she has written for New Scientist, Nature and Physics World, among others. Her academic background is in atomic physics, specialising in laboratory astrophysics. So Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. This is something of um, a mission accomplished moment for me. because Since we started this podcast back in the summer of last year, um, I've really wanted to speak to a science journalist about science advice, um, because I think journalists actually have a very important role and an underappreciated role, actually, in the wider ecosystem of science advice and how it works. So I do want to ask you about what it's like to be a science journalist in general, But before I do, one thing from your background intrigues me. What is laboratory astrophysics? Well, um, if I can still remember, it's basically when you create something astrophysical in the lab. So it might be the um, atmosphere of a planet or something. You basically put all the constituents of it in in a machine and you make it... um, You encourage it to undergo certain transitions that you're expecting to see in this atmosphere and then you look at them you measure them and then you can compare it to data from uh, telescopes in space or on earth or or whatever of actual astrophysical phenomenon and you can compare and you can actually work out specifically the level of sort of atomic physics or whatever it is below what is causing what we see uh, in space so it's a way to sort of find out more about what's going on what I did was looking at Jupiter's um, atmosphere and the, the equivalent of the northern lights we have here uh, on Jupiter. So it's it's a bit of uh, Jupiter's atmosphere in a, in a jar. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. And now I'm envisaging like this kind of uh, sci-fi superhero lab <laughs> where you have a miniature Jupiter floating on the desk in front of you with energy crackling around it and you can <laughs> tweak some dials and make things happen. <laughs> did you have any problem with supervillains uh, bursting into your lab and stealing your work <laughs> to... I don't know, to power their terrible doomsday superweapons. No, there was a lot of uh, security, actually. So, no. <laughs> yeah, um, I bet. Uh, but I'll leave people with that image. I like it. Um, it was a lot more boring than that. But, you know, let's uh, <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> oh, come on. You know, everyone always says that about their research. When you say, oh, that sounds interesting, they always come back with, oh, no, 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 it's a lot less interesting than it sounds. <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, I eventually decided to do something else. So I it guess is, that's true. It is fascinating. And I love physics. Um, but uh, I'm quite happy to be covering a a broader range of things. Yeah, so on that, I mean, I guess no one listening to this podcast will doubt that science journalism must be rewarding and interesting job as well as an important one. But in your experience, do you feel like your audience also has an appetite for these things? Do you think people in the world are crying out for the kinds of stories you want to tell them about science? I mean, yes. Um, just working for the conversation, I mean, is a good example because the conversation is basically a website where all the articles are written by academic experts, uh, scientists, or, or, you know, you could be an academic expert on anything, you know, politics, arts, humanities, anything. Yeah, we we get a lot of reads. And I think um, it's because people do appreciate hearing from experts. Um, So yes, the science stories there do particularly well. 
And the way it works is that we have a team of professional um, journalists that work very closely with um, the academic author. And so together we can create something that's sort of newsy, that fits with a wider news cycle and that's accessible, easy to read, but that's also uh, written by the researchers themselves and that's got that level of rigor to it. We obviously do some of the rigor as well uh, in terms of bringing the journalistic expertise to it. So. Um, yeah, and so being the science editor, you know, the science stories do really well. And um, we've seen that, for example, the um, very technical stories, or very, shall I say, not technical, uh, but stories about very technical subjects can do very well. Uh, for example, just a few months ago, we had a story that was called A Major Quantum Computational Breakthrough is Shaking Up Physics and Maths. And basically what the discovery was, was two complexity classes, so that's collections of computational problems, um, are equivalent to each other. <laughs> and those are the classes okay. <laughs> MIP star equals RE. Um, and, you know, it was really quite abstract, um, but it got like more than 300,000 reads, which just goes to show what kind of appetite there is for something that it might be on a difficult, abstract subject, but if it's presented, you know, in a way that's easy to understand, people are really interested in reading about those things, like, you know, testing quantum mechanics or whatever it may be. Uh, almost the more complicated, the more interest there is, because it's quite hard to find something that's accessible, that you can actually read about those things and, and you know, feel like you can understand them. I see. So the, the gold standard, as it were, is something that people are pleased to be able to engage with that, that, that level of complexity and still understand it. And what are the characteristics of a story that will make it play well with an audience? Do you have an idea when you start working on a particular subject? Uh, this is something that will get a lot of attention. Yeah, I mean, there are topics that pe people are always going to be interested in black holes and, you know, dinosaurs and stuff like that. But, you know, th this example I mentioned just goes to show that actually people are genuinely interested in science and it doesn't have to be just the sexiest bits of science. Um, it's it's it, it can I mean you do have an intuition for what people will be interested in I think there is a, a class of articles that are sort of like uh, science that's really abstract difficult and sort of hard to access that is popular in itself because uh, there aren't that many places you can go to read about those sorts of things as to whether you know how well something will do I mean I feel like yeah, we usually have a sense of this, this will probably do well. And, you know, about half the times you're wrong. And that could be uh, because you didn't know, but it can also just be down to what else is happening that day. You know, did that story not get, you know, wasn't it high enough on the website? You know, did it not get picked up by other media? That sort of thing. Um, at the conversation, we get a lot of data uh, on where, how well the articles do, because um, they are all creative commons, which means that other media can republish them. Anyone can read them for free uh, and other media can republish them. So they tend to get picked up by anything from, you know, newspapers like The Guardian or The Daily Mail to sort of Scientific American or IFL Science or the World Economic Forum. But they can basically get um, reposted and uh, we can track you know, how many reads it gets. Ah, I see. Oh, so when you mentioned 300,000 reads for the piece about um, complexity classes, that needn't have just been on your website. It could have been across a range of outlets. 
That wasn't just on the conversation. They might it might have been in that case. It might have ended up on Apple News, um, uh-huh. which uh, will, the articles will uh, uh, be featured there, uh, where more more people would have seen it. So on the conversation, we get about sort of three four million uh, unique readers on our website every month. Actually, it's it's probably climbed above that now. But in terms of all the republished uh, material, it's more like ten million reads. So our readers are typically anybody who just picks up a newspaper and might not even necessarily know about the conversation, although we're becoming more well-known with time. It's a very interesting publishing model or production model, I suppose, for, for, for science news. So if I understand rightly, you start off working with the experts themselves to write the articles in their own names, and then you publish it for free and allow anyone to republish it when they want. So who pays for this? Um, I mean, we are funded by uh, universities, so we have member universities and we've got about 80, I think, mainly in the UK, um, Ireland, sort of Scandinavia, North Europe. Um, And uh, yeah, so these universities pay an annual fee uh, to support the conversation and their academics can write for us. They also get training and other things. So technically any academic at a university can pitch to us. so yeah, that's how we are funded. So we don't have any advertising or anything like that. And all the articles, yes, they are free to read. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to uh, tackle or just sidestep, I suppose, one of the challenges of, of modern journalism, which everyone's talking about, the disinvestment in traditional print media. I mean, across the board, but especially in science journalism. Yeah, it's it's such a shame. I mean, there is a lot of expertise into science health. You know, we've seen with the COVID pandemic how how important it is, you know, overall the media's done a great job and a lot of resources have gone into to, um, covering COVID. But, you know, generally there's been a, a huge fall in expert journalism uh, in terms of science and health in those fields. And and, and the conversation is uh, hoping to be somewhere you can go to get news delivered by experts themselves together with journalists to, to, to get something where so you can still access the expertise that may have been lost, you know, it's not meant to replace that sort of journalism, but um, it's it's a, a good complementary model. Sure. And it makes business sense. If I'm the general editor of a newspaper or whatever, and I no longer have my own expert um, science journalism team or my own in-house writer, the offer of a bank of high quality writing, which I can access and, and reprint for free, must be very appealing. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so aside from the challenges faced by the industry. Let's talk a bit more about the the job of an individual journalist, a science journalist, day to day. What are the main challenges of your job? I mean, I think the main thing, which might be obvious, to just make the science clear and accessible. um, That's that's really important. And to, you know, as as we've already seen with example I've given, is that people want to hear about you know, research. They want to hear about complicated research. You know, they want to keep up with science. Um, And you don't have to dumb down the science or the ideas. You just have to sort of simplify the language. And so this is, you know, a really important thing, I think, to get right. Uh, And that and a lot of time goes into editing these articles so they are easy to read and that any newspaper could pick them up. So I think with when I started this job, I thought, you know, this is going to be really difficult to get, you know, researchers themselves writing articles. You know, it's just going to be, you know, 
a lot of work editing this into something that's accessible. But I think there's been so much um, pressure on researchers to go out there, communicate their research. Uh, and, and I think that's actually made a lot of researchers very good at writing. And I, I was pleasantly surprised starting at the conversation to see the level um, that scientists have when it comes to writing and explaining their ideas. I also think, you know, people are getting um, better at understanding science. I think we've seen with, with COVID, you know, a lot of people are quite comfortable with, increasingly comfortable with statistics and, and graphs. And, you know, we've seen journalists take complicated mathematical arguments to sort of challenge ministers on false positive rates and stuff like that. And I think just generally that this pandemic has seems to have made people better at maths and more comfortable with it as well. Yeah, on that though, when you're deciding who's going to write for you, so choosing the writers and, and indeed the topics, assuming you personally haven't got expertise of your own on the topic that's being discussed, so that is assuming it's not an article about recreating Jupiter on a lab bench, <laughs> how do you make sure that you can still have journalistic balance and be confident in your accuracy and so on? And, and in particular, how can you be sure that you're not amplifying the voice of a very fringe expert? Yeah, I mean, this is another major challenge. One way we approach this is by requiring that anybody who writes for the conversation writes on the topic of their research expertise. So you cannot, as we sometimes see with, you know, misinformation, you know, quoting experts who are not really experts on what they're talking about. So it's sometimes that's a shame because you can get really strong pitches sometimes from scientists who want to write about, I don't know, bullying in academia or gender equality or something, something like that. And or they might have been bullied or seen a case or I don't know. They might have, you know, experience of what they want to write about. But unless that is the topic of their actual research, they cannot write for us. So that's one way um, we approach this. The other thing is, I, I suppose, trying to... Um, reflect the different views that are out there so on things where there isn't a clear consensus you know to make all voices heard but to also try to get a sense you know across everything we commission of you know what the mainstream is if the, if there is a mainstream view you know if there's something very controversial coming out very controversial research coming out we might not go to the experts themselves to write about that paper we might get somebody else to review them for example um, and also to try to build in context into the articles about how they fit in within the wider pool of research on this on this subject how a new piece of uh, research fits in so the other thing is um, we also value transparency. So if you write for the conversation, you will have a profile which will explain exactly what your expertise is. So, uh, you know, a reader should be able to just click on your name, see what you've done, what your expertise is to sort of see for yourself that you're an expert who, are, who, who should be writing on this topic. Every article will also have a disclosure statement uh, visible on the, on the article by the academics, which says whether they have any competing interests in terms of, you know, owning shares in a company or anything like that. Also, just generally where they get their research funding. If they had research funding to write about to, for the, the project that they are writing about, you know, where did that come from? Uh, even if it's a research council grant, they will typically mention that. And that's just a way for the reader to know that, you know, they can trust the expert. This brings me to wonder about something which has become particularly an issue in 2020. So we've seen scientific research and the whole scientific process happening 
not only much more quickly, but also much more in the public eye than we've been used to. So rather than the paradigm of science doing all its work, coming to a, a consensus and then telling the world about it, we've seen all that stuff, all the disputation, all the evidence sifting, all the competing hypotheses and false starts and so on. We've seen it all happening under the spotlight with enormous public interest and, and so, of course, reported live by the media. And this is something which which interests me. How do you, as a journalist, find ways to accurately portray the latest evidence, but not just the content of it, but also its context, its limitations, the degree of caution we should associate with it, and so on. And the possibility, especially in 2020, that what you're reporting on this week might turn out next week to have been a fluke or an error. Yes, um, this is challenging, and especially with the fact that you know, normally you cover a new paper when it comes out, and it's been peer reviewed. It's you know it's taken time to get it out there, and now you know everything is happening quicker. And I think we've seen you know several cases of papers being retracted, you know policies being turned around, uh, and and because you know we it's a new virus and we know very little about it, and so research is happening very quickly, as you say. And I think with that, you know, there was a bit of discussion at first, you know, what do we do? Do we not cover papers that haven't been peer-reviewed, for example? Do we not cover preprints? You can't really keep up with the coverage of COVID and the information that people are, are people need, you know, without touching on those papers. But again, you can do things like maybe getting an expert, another expert reviewing a preprint rather than maybe getting the 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 researchers themselves writing, but you can sometimes do that depending on maybe how controversial it is. Um, but I think you just have to be very clear about how you have to state clearly in the article that this uh, hasn't been, you know, scrutinized by other researchers in the peer review process. Be clear about whether something has been retracted. Uh, you know, w what do you do with the article? Do you, do you take it down or do you, you know, maybe in some cases, you know, the wider topic that was written about pegged to the research is still valid and you can put a, a you know, a correction or a disclaimer along those lines. It's very much been uh, sort of a case-by-case -case approach uh, to any new research that comes out. But basically, no, you can't just, you, you have to sort of keep up with the research, but you have to be very, very clear about the fact that, you know, this is all new or this hasn't been peer-reviewed and, and so forth and be open about it, you know, being challenged and then sort of keeping up with the challenge, the, the challenger view as well. Um, so yeah, that 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 has definitely been um, difficult. Um, I mean, also, in general, I mean, in general, regardless of COVID, you know, I, I do think you have to dig in a little bit into the qualities of the papers, especially if they haven't been peer reviewed. But a, a study showing that chocolate is good for you, involving three people and funded by Nutella, can sometimes get the same sort of headline as a paper that's based on a 15-year double-blind clinical trial or whatever, you know. And you have to sort of work out how good is this study, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then, of course, as you mentioned before, with balance, uh, and in our case, it's different as we're not reporting where we researchers are writing themselves. So then it's more about covering um, a variety of voices. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, you don't want to end up with a sort of case of false balance that we've seen, you know, previously um, with um, climate change where, 
you know, a climate skeptic would get one comment and uh, somebody saying that, well, humans are to blame for rising temperatures, that they are, they have, you know, equally valid views. You know, climate change is something that's been researched for so long. And I think that's something that should be reflected in commissioning as well, that uh, with a field like climate change, you know, you don't want to have half of the articles being by climate skeptics. With COVID, it's been a bit more difficult because there are very strong views on all sides, but it is a new virus and it hasn't had that decades of research across many different disciplines that we've seen in climate change, for example. And so it, it, it's not as, as obvious what the mainstream is. Well, it depends on what you're looking at, but, you know, yeah. All right. So, so we've been talking about science reporting and the pitfalls and challenges of doing it well, doing it responsibly. And I want to pivot now to talk about another challenge, related one, I'm sure, which is the challenge of reporting about science advice. And I guess it's an interesting consequence, actually, of the last 12 months that there's even something to talk about here, that the question of how journalists write about science advice is even a question. And in fact, okay, maybe that's somewhere to start. What are your reflections in general, on how you think the public conversation has been in the past year about science advice, about evidence for policy, uh, and about the contribution that journalists are making to that conversation? Yeah, um, it's been, I mean, it's getting messy, I would say. Um, I mean, it started out very much within the UK, people were really, really supportive of um, uh, restrictions, for example, and trusting of the science advisors who, uh, you know, went out and talked about COVID and I think yeah I think it has been getting difficult you know in the UK for example you know the main science advisory committee is called SAGE and at first you know the membership the research the deliberations of this group was very secret uh, and so until something leaked out uh, in the press that you know forced transparency and you know that leak revealed sort of inappropriate involvement of government advisors in this group and you know also questions about um, the membership you know do we have enough experts from various disciplines do we have enough uh, expertise on you know clinical care or ethnic minorities and so forth and so I think that that created some some um, distrust yeah I think, I, you know right 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 well well yeah I mean yeah so so that's a very interesting case study on how um a science advice mechanism could enter the public discourse and the risks associated with how it's seen then. And like I said, it would seem almost bizarre a year ago to imagine there might be that level of public interest and media attention on the inside workings of a science advice committee, but, but there it is. Indeed. And there's lots we could say about it for sure. What interests me right now because of your particular expertise is what you think the roles and responsibilities of journalists are when covering that kind of situation, what should you do? What can you do to help people make sense of things? Yeah, I, that's a very good question. I think I think with a few things that we've already talked about, like in terms of you know representing a, a variety of views where there isn't a consensus, and you know that might just come down to different disciplines. You know, there are no, as far as I know, any engineers on Sage. You know, but in in a pandemic, you know, there are going to be engineering solutions that might might be really useful in tackling the pandemic. There are also experts on science communication, for example, uh, who might uh, who have written articles like for us on you know the problems of uh 
the, the science advice or how it's been used, who can sort of take that sort of angle uh, and who can also comment on the level of um, consensus and so forth. Also encouraging experts when they speak up and advisors when they speak up to also be open about what we do and what we don't know. And, you know, the various sort of different fields. It isn't just about epidemiology. You know, some think there's been too much focus on that. You know, there is, there is also... Uh, yeah, economic research, uh, public health uh, research, um, virology, uh, you know, wide range of factors, uh, education, uh, inequalities, you know, there's a lot that comes into it. And, you know, when compared with something like we talked about before, like climate change, that has been probed from all these different views for so long, you know, you do have an overall, still have an overall consensus where there's, here it is, it is, it is messier. And I just think, as as a journalist, yeah, to make sure that number one, to make sure that the expert speaking or the advisor speaking is actually an expert on what they're talking about. That's a very basic one, but also to to try to look at where there is consensus and and you know be clear about that. You know, if there is a consensus on a particular thing, you know, we should say that. If there isn't, we should say that. And uh, and in that case, you know, get other views as well. Yeah, okay, this this interests me because I think uh, one normally sees journalism as a kind of neutral observing and reporting job, so, so quite passive in that sense, I mean deliberately so. But some of what you just said suggests a bit more of an active role where the journalists can encourage scientists, science advisors to communicate and to talk about their reasoning and the level of consensus and, and so on. And I think that role is underappreciated. But it also comes with risks, I think, because when you do that, you're stepping, you, the journalist, are stepping into a potentially political, um, swirling political waters where you might have disagreement among scientists or between scientists and politicians and, and questions of evidence and what policy follows from the evidence are really political and really highly charged. Uh, the main thing would probably be to talk to a lot of people before you write that piece do your research and it is becoming really complicated now because it, it it's getting more and more polarized even with with covid you know we had um, you know a, a while ago we had uh, Carl Hennigan who's the director of the University of Oxford Center for Evidence Based Medicine and he wrote a piece in the uh, spectator about masks raising some questions about their efficiency and this piece then got shared on Facebook where it got uh, classified as misinformation <laughs> and you do have to ask I mean it is hard being a science journalist it is hard to be in all this and you're wondering you know right so who do I trust uh, you know, I haven't looked into all the evidence on, on masks and so forth, but it is a very confusing time. And I have a lot of sympathy with, you know, the journalist in, that you, you're bringing up in this case who has to uh, deal with a, a controversy uh, like that. But, you know, I'd say speaking to many different people from who has many different views is always the best way to go about it to try to avoid this uh the polarized nature of the world right now where everyone's living in their echo chamber and it isn't easy that i think the media is learning a lot about how to cover a pandemic how to cover uh something that we don't know a lot about but we're constantly learning more and more and more you know yeah, for sure. Well, I think if we end up with a better state of understanding among journalists and among the public about scientific evidence and how to talk intelligently about it, well, that will be one outcome for the better. Indeed. 
Okay, so so while I have you here, I also want to pick your brains as a science communication person on something a bit different. Science advisors have always worked behind the scenes, but then in recent months we've seen them, as we said, directly communicating with the public too. So appearing on primetime TV with a spotlight on them um, and the expectation on them to really communicate the science to everyone. Now, in some cases, this can put people outside their comfort zones. And there have been examples, I think, of it being done both well and badly in the last year. So I wondered if you, as a journalist, have any tips, basically, you're a science communication expert, if you were called in to advise a top scientist on how to perform under those circumstances, what would you tell them? Well, I think the main thing would be to realize that there is a lot of fear and anxiety around COVID. I mean, if this is on COVID and, you know, to obviously be reassuring and to not whip up unnecessary fear, uh, but to be clear, to speak with words that you'd use every day. So if you were explaining something to your friend in a pub or a cafe, you know, that sort of language, um, to be open about what we don't know and what we do know, uh, but also to, um, be open about what the science says and maybe what your own views are. Uh, you know, scientists have views too. And I think, you know, that's another thing that you need to be clear about. Um, and I think also to, to keep in mind that even though people are getting better at maths and, and statistics and that sort of things, and, and the numbers often are very good in terms of explaining why we have to use certain restrictions. You know, if you look at these numbers, how they're going to change, it's all very good. It's very powerful in some ways, but there's always going to be some people who uh, maybe aren't that comfortable with statistics or that interested. Uh, and I think it's it's important to also try to use some narratives, you know, to reach out, just move a little bit beyond the facts. And maybe like we have the, the deputy chief medical officer in the UK saying that, you know, the vaccine coming out, he was asked, would you take this vaccine? And he was saying, well, you know, with him not being in, in a priority group, uh, but he would definitely encourage, he has already told his mum that she should be ready to take this vaccine. You know, that sort of story, personal um, narrative can work quite well, uh, as long as you're sure about, you know, the science behind it. All right, great. Thank you. Last question, a more philosophical one about the role of science journalism. So clearly, as, as a journalist, your role is to report on science. And I think in normal times, we'd take it as read that what you contribute to the, to the world, to the public conversation, is uh, an understanding of what science is doing on behalf of the rest of us. But we don't live in normal times. And there's a live public debate, as you know, about the whole, the whole kind of premise of science, about its value, about whether expertise and evidence really should play the role that they uh, they aspire to play in guiding our lives and guiding policy so ordinarily when a view is contested it's it's the duty of a responsible journalist to kind of report on that contest without personally taking sides so this is a long-winded way of framing a simple question um, do you think in the current climate a science journalist should be withholding judgment on the question of the value of science or is it rather part of your job to promote public trust and become essentially a pro-science voice um not on any specific question but on the broader stuff i think you should be open about that but i i would definitely say that 
ultimately, just because there isn't a clear consensus on everything relating to COVID doesn't mean that there won't be. You know, I believe, as I think many scientists, uh, science journalists believe that ultimately, after enough research, there will be clear, and it is emerging uh, in many ways, clear consensus on certain things that really will be, you know, reliable evidence and and something that we we ought to listen to. Yes, I think that is a duty to maintain that trust in science. You don't want to be, especially in a pandemic, being going around spreading doubts about the, you know, efficiency of science. I mean, uh, that said, you know, you shouldn't try to pretend that it's perfect uh, at the time being, or you shouldn't hide away from uh, maybe scientific controversies or uh, problems with data or whatever. You know, you, sh- you have the duty to report objectively on what's happening and not to try to sort of hide away certain things. Uh, you, sh- you know, you, sh- you should be able to report on everything. But, you know, I think anybody who's in science journalism has a strong belief in science and evidence. And of course, political decisions and what we actually do and what restrictions we impose some of those things aren't and shouldn't maybe be based on on science but they should be definitely be informed by science and and uh, I think it's definitely important that we don't go around spreading doubts about science being useful I would say that's a priority for me uh, I mean the whole aim of the conversation is that we get to hear from the experts. There is actually such thing as evidence and we take it very seriously. And uh, I think that is that is hugely important. Well, thank you for those words of wisdom and encouragement and indeed for spending time talking to me today. Miriam Frankel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.